Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rash's World. We have a special guest today, Tanya Collins Crombie. Uh, welcome to Rash's World. Thank you so much. I'm great to be happy. Happy to be here. Wonderful. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. That's great. Let's get started here with uh, the main question I asked. The first question I ask uh, all my guests is, how would you describe yourself? And I, I know you have lots of things to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, of course, everybody has lots and lots of ways that they would describe themselves. I think probably the thing that comes first to mind, just based on where I am in life, is I'm a mom. <laughs> I'm a, a I'm a wife. I'm a teacher. I'm a coach. Uh, I think I'm a good friend. That's how I describe myself. And that's great because I I think it's as you're saying we have different parts and different roles and we try to fill them, and um, all of them are very important. But especially in your case, the being a mother and 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 a wife and a friend and so on is very important because that goes in ties in with your coaching. And uh, we're here to talk about your book. Stop worrying about your anxious child. And uh, you have a teenage version of that as well. Um, so yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, so like I said, I'm a mom and I uh, I do have a PhD in psychology. I am a life coach, mm -hmm. um, but that is not at all why I wrote either one of those books. I wrote those books because I was a mother of a child um, both of my children have had struggles with anxiety, but one of my children really had a acute period of struggling. And in that period, it was really difficult for me, for my family, uh, obviously for the child that was struggling. And going through that and having, you know, theoretically having all this education and everything, you know, I should having it was it was a double whammy for me because one, I didn't know what to do. And two, I felt terrible about myself because I felt like I should know what to do. I should be handling this better. I should be, you know, all the shoulds. Yeah, yeah. So um, kind of figuring out navigating that road and coming out on the other side and learning some really important lessons is what the book's about. And you're making a great point because that's been one of the things I, I'm very passionate about. And I like to see not just the theory, but the practice. And so a lot of times, and we have um, a psychologist whose children are not doing well in some cases. I'm not talking about your case specifically. And I think there's kind of that disconnect. It's like, well, that's my job. I know it in theory, but then actually applying it and being a mother is something often completely different. And so that becomes embodying your work and using your knowledge and figuring out what actually works, what works in theory, but not in practice, and how to kind of find your own strategy there. So in a sense, uh, could we say that the book is also telling yourself, like, stop worrying about your <laughs> child, you know, it's like, yeah. we got this. And you're going to share your experience, you are sharing your experiences uh, in uh, from your own experiences here in the book. But let's talk about some of those tips. I mean, I, I'm a parent myself. I have a, a son who's a teen and uh, we're going to maybe talk about him a bit later. But what would be um, the main um, strategy here, your, your tip here? How can we stop worrying? Because we naturally do. We're concerned parents. We all do. Right. Um, and like you said, all of your um, discussion to come to get to that question uh, was exactly the truth for me. I knew things 
So I had like, I read the books mm -hmm. and I kind of had that idea. If I've read the book and I know the stuff, I don't have to do the stuff. I know it. <laughs> and that was where the big disconnect was. I like, I knew everything there was to know about meditation. I'd read about it, mm -hmm. but I wasn't doing it. And so my, and my it's not feeling bad about that because I know a grief expert, David Kessler, he, when he suffered grief, he had to uh, look for counseling himself and he's an expert on the topic. So, so that kind of like, it, it's natural. It's, it it's okay. Yeah. And not to feel bad about it. I should know it. Yeah. But it's a different experience once you're really in it yourself. Yeah, exactly. And it's a different experience. Like I think, uh, obviously, is what I do for a living. And I've been told lots and lots of times that I'm very good at helping other people navigate it. Mm -hmm. But I'm not emotionally invested in that in the same way. That's a good like when point. you're and, and our emotions, let's think about our brains and how our brains work. Our emotions can hijack all of the smart, rational, good parts of our brain. So I was so emotional that I wasn't tapping into any of the, the calm, wise part of my brain. I was just operating from that pure emotion, which is really not where we make great decisions. It's not where we parent. Um, and so that takes me to probably the best and most important tip, which is there's nothing more anxiety provoking for a parent than their child's anxiety. Yes. And so when we, and we lose sight of that, we think, oh, it's their problem. I need to take care of them. It is no different than when they got the flu when they were four years old and I took them to the pediatrician and I gave them the cough medicine and I took their temperature. I just took care of them. And I never thought about myself, right? Mm. And with anxiety, which is a chronic condition, no different than say asthma or, you know, eyesight needing glasses. It's the same kind of thing that you, you don't, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And when you're managing a chronic condition, you have to take care of you. Mm -hmm. You have to take care of you. And, and you can't forget that um, their anxiety is raising your anxiety and you're getting emotional and therefore you aren't being the parent you want to be. So probably it is that old cliche, you know, put your own air mask on first. Yes. Uh, and it seems selfish and it seems counterintuitive. And it's the opposite of what I wanted to do when it was me, because I also have a lot of stories in my head about what's, what's a good mom. Mm -hmm does a good mom do good moms don't focus on themselves that's selfish good moms do everything for their kids and I had to get past all of that stuff and really focus on me enough to be a good mom <laughs> and uh, yeah I mean there is no manual for for good parenting I mean we try and I think what complicates things is because each uh, child is unique and they have yes. their unique needs and and uh, unique makeup and the way they think the ways they see the world and so we really have to tap into that although the advice is kind of general here but really like focusing on on the the child themselves I think Absolutely. In fact, a big part of um, where I have come to over this journey, and it's not really where I started, but as I've done this work for many years now with other people and even with adults who are struggling with anxiety, 
where I've come to about that unique piece <laughs> is that anxiety is always, in my opinion, I've yet to find an, an exception to this, and there may be one out there, but so far I haven't found it. It's always been a side effect of something great about us. The, the people who tend to struggle with anxiety the most are also people who have these really amazing gifts that, oh, by the way, those gifts tend to make us feel more anxious. And so examples of things would be like um, people who are really good at reading a room, really good at noticing what's going on. Well, they pick up on all the anxiety too. Um, you know, or people that are, um, I had a client, I use this client all the time because it's such a great example. Uh, he was a police officer. He was a detective. He was like, he started off like right out of high school, went straight into police and worked his way up to the, being the top detective over all the detectives in the department because of his superpower, which is totally understanding people totally picking up on all the subtleties. And when you do that, you also tend to have that side effect, which means you're a little bit more prone to feeling anxious. Um, artists, people who feel big feelings, people who play music, people who paint, people who dance, people who perform. I mean, it's, we read about it all the time, like celebrities who see, like the performers who, and then, oh, by the way, they struggle with crippling anxiety. Because that greatness, you know, there's a cost and it tends to be anxiety. Yeah. And that's one of the things I wanted to mention, because in, in my case, and more so my son is um, we're highly sensitive people. And so mm -hmm. the HSP, and I'm so glad that came out, that kind of view of, of people and saying these are people whose whose brains are structured in a different way, who perceive things differently, who are more sensitive, attuned, as you're saying, to other people's emotions and it affects them. And so it's 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 harder for 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 these people at the same time it's it's kind of blessing and a curse it's both yes. because you tend to uh, the joys are much more livelier and you feel life and then the downs are also stronger so you kind of the bipolar thing that uh, you fall into of the, the two sides but there are ways of of um of uh, dealing with them of uh not falling um uh too deep into into that hole so what what would you suggest for specifically people who are more sensitive like myself and my son well, one of the things I've been saying to my daughter, so a couple of things. First is just what we just said is super important. Know that this is a gift that comes with anxiety, not I'm an anxious person, because the way we describe ourselves is very, very powerful. So if we say I'm anxious, that that's just like, that's not, you are not anxious. You tend to feel anxious at times, but you are not anxious. You are awesome. You are amazing. You do these things. And so framing it is important. Um, and the, the knowing, I used to say to my daughter and I still say it all the time. In fact, uh, I just dropped her off for, co for college two days ago. She is, oh. she is off at college, Congrats. right? <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know, fingers crossed. <laughs> it's early days. Um, I, she did be better than I did, which is what we want, right? Mm -hmm. And um, at, I wrote her a letter and I said it again because I've been saying this over and over. Know how you work. And that is like, that is such an, and like you said, they're each unique. 
Your child is different than mine. But when we figure out how we work, and that's, again, it's not a judgment. It's not a negative. It's just, mm -hmm. this is how I work and how I've always worked. And I, so now I know what to expect and how to manage it. This is my daughter. I call, she was, you said high highs and low lows. I called her that. She was my high highs and low lows baby from day one. I had, she's my second child. So I had the no drama child and my children are a year apart too. Mm -hmm. So I also had like two babies at once. And, and I had this one baby who had was like so darn easy that I was like, I'm a great mother. Look, I figured this out. <laughs> it's all because of me. So then I had a second child that, you know, karma will always put you in your place. And so I had the second child that was like, what is wrong with this baby? Two seconds ago, she was fine. She's screaming. And, and it would be like, She'd go be hungry in two seconds. She'd be tired and, you know, she'd go from fine to tired, fine to hungry so quickly. And so that's an example of something I'm like, know that you don't do well when you're hungry. Know that you don't do well when you're tired. Know that you need time away from people you always have. You need downtime. And so that's how we help our kids learn to manage the superpower that's great. You're great. And if in the right setting, you are going to shine. You are going to be so awesome. But in the wrong setting, it actually makes you worse than worse people than other people. Mm -hmm. You know, it affects you more. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's a really cool research that I found as I was writing my books. There was some research called uh, it's a book called Orchids and Dandelions. Have you ever heard of that? I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, and the whole concept was there's kids who are dandelions, who, you know, like dandelions, they'll just sprout and grow wherever and they, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter if it's great or not. Mm -hmm. The orchids, obviously they need the right setting, just like an orchid does. You have to kind of pamper them a little bit, but when they're in the right setting, they're much more beautiful than the dandelion. <laughs> they're much more healthy. They're much one of the surprising things, though, is and talking about the, the, these different uh, types of, of children is and also adults. I mean, the, the growing adults is kind of what's surprising is that the ones that seem the toughest and the strongest when they're under pressure, they often break down. And it's the, the ones who are sensitive who surprise. And I've seen a lot of cases of that where you think like, oh, these people won't survive under this pressure. They're not going to do well. But somehow even though they never showed it, there's this like this like inner reservoir of like resilience of persistence that's there and they surprise. And uh, my um, my wife has examples of that. She's a nurse. And by the way, she also goes through those phases, even though she knows the procedure, she knows it is that she over uh, reacts and worries when it comes to like dealing with her own child and other children. But one of the things she also said that those uh, the ones who are say I'm, who are, I'm strong, I'm tough and so on, when they come to the emergency room and they have a cut or a bruise, they're the ones who are the crybabies. And so so we have to keep that in mind. It's like it's not just the appearance. There is so much more at stake there. And it's it's good to 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 know that. But we can't quickly uh, uh, draw conclusions about that, I think. No, I um. I'm a firm believer in, like I, I've said over and over, the blessing of things, you know, <laughs> the, there are gifts and things that seem terrible almost always have a gift, mm -hmm. uh, maybe always, but 
a lot of the time. And so like the gift of my daughter's struggles, which happened when she was kind of, you know, 12, 13 ish. Um, she had to learn some really hard lessons at 12 and 13 about her own health, her own, how she needs to manage her emotions. And I felt so great let, dropping her off at college because I know she's done work for years to prepare herself for this big transition. Is it going to be tough? Is she going to have anxiety? Absolutely. There's no doubt because that's how she works. Mm -hmm. She's going to get nervous. She's going to get scared. She's going to get overwhelmed. She's going to get anxious. And she knows what to do. She has, mm -hmm. she has some skills she's developed. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that's happened too, it's we're more open talking about these things and I talk. And when you say bad things happen, but there's a, a silver lining, there's something good out of it. I'm thinking of COVID and like, although it's been horrible and devastating at the mm -hmm. same time, there are lots of blessings there. And uh, I think, and this for my wife, this was the worst what if scenario. It's like, what's the worst thing that could happen? She's like, before it happening, she had like nightmares about something terrible happening. And it did. But what do we do with it? And so this anxiety, I think, is actually quite normal and very, very common. And people yes. who say they're not anxious, they are lying most of the <laughs> times, you know, or they're trying yeah. to hide that. So I, I think that's important because um, people who are more sensitive saw themselves at a disadvantage. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm anxious and they are not. And I think now that the, the, the conversation has opened up and we are all in a, in a very anxious situation, parents and children and everyone alike, we are talking openly about it and we are admitting it in many cases too, which is wonderful. It takes away that stigma that's attached to anxiety. Yeah, I do talks with high school kids and college kids. And, and I say, you know, um, this percentage experience, you know, clinical anxiety, this percentage of the population have a diagnosis and a hundred percent of people will feel anxiety at some point in their life. <laughs> it's a normal yeah. part of being human. It is. And I mean, just knowing what I know about how our brains are created, it's, it's the way our brain is designed to work in case there really is something that we need to run away from or, you know, the house catches on fire and we need to escape. Our brain is designed to keep us alive. And so it's totally normal. And when we're looking at the brains of children and teens, it's still developing. And so there's this assumption from parents often that uh, we're equals. They're like mini adults and they're not. And oh, so no. I, I was I was quite fascinated to find out like a lot of times when they're forgetful and like things they didn't do, it's not because they are like being rebellious and uh, kind of attacking us or anything. It's just because they simply forgot. Their brain is in, in constant change. It's pruning itself. And uh, we have to keep that in mind. And uh, a, a lot of parents and adults don't do that. We just think they're just like us, but we have to see the world through their eyes and put ourselves in their shoes, I think. And that's brain science has really shown that like the brain is still developing until age 25, I think. So yeah. uh, we have to keep that in mind. And as, uh, as an instructor, because that's the uh, group I would teach as young university students, that's something that helped me to understand my students better when they forget to do, of course, I mean, it's, uh, there are some who take advantage of that, but in general, that's what's happening in the brains. And we have to take that into consideration. Totally, 
totally. I just heard a fascinating little talk about executive functioning skills. And as an instructor, that's something else that um, we I hear and read and see so many people of my generation complaining that the younger students don't have those basic planning and organizing. They just aren't good at it like we were. And someone was explaining like, the way that we had to navigate the world as children versus the way our children navigate the world have created it's it's you know you only get developed the skills that you are that you have to use so we had to if we wrote a paper when we were in school we had to go to a library <laughs> we had to use a card catalog we had to wander through stacks of books and and plan time to do all that and bring our books back to the library on time. All that stuff that we started doing when we were really young, our kids have never done in their lives because yeah. they do not have to. They yeah. Google, they find the answers on their computer. And, you know, so it's just they didn't develop some of the skills that we had to because they have tools we did not have. Yeah, and that 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 causes some problems often. I'm glad you you're mentioning <laughs> this because in in our time, if I wanted to plagiarize, it would have taken a lot of effort just to get the book <laughs> and so on. That's so I, at some point, I was like, well, it's not worth it anyway. I'll just write my own stuff. But today, that's like the temptation is there, and in a in a generation that is uh, once quick results. Uh, we see that often with uh, with with students and kids and so on. It's like, oh, this is the fast way and I want to do it. I don't want to put in the extra time and effort into it. Um, how can we change that mindset or kind of get the give them the experience that we've had in terms of working hard to achieve something and not go for the quick and easy result? <laughs> well, have question. I actually have have thoughts on it because it is something mm. that I think I I teach in college as well. So oh. for my students, it's something I've thought a lot about, and um, I believe this is just the world according to Tanya. So take it for what it's worth. But my belief is that our we have to get them to understand a different objective. I think school, going through school all the way to college gives them this idea that the goal is the grade mm -hmm. and we have to shift in little ways to say the goal is the learning. Mm -hmm. Hard learning is better than easy learning. Again, that's how our brains work. If it, if it, if you struggle, if you work hard, that's the stuff that stays in your brain. So the idea that if I took a quiz and got a bad grade, that's the worst thing that could happen. I'm always like, that's a great thing because that means you're going to have to work for this and you're going to learn it. You're going to remember it. But we, uh, it's a mindset shift that we really have to get to, to help them see the work is the, is the good part. The struggle is good. Um, I, I completely agree with you. And so it's it's a great and they're so focused on grades and partly I think parents too, because they are so focused on grades too. So yes. it's kind of a vicious cycle. But I think it's like for them, I say, look, if you get a decent grade, an okay grade, but you work hard for it, it's worth more than the student who didn't work hard and got a very good grade. So it's really like, uh, it's very subjective uh, in that sense. And we the way we see things, like we can see procrastination as, this is a lazy student, but at the same time, I know that some students are perfectionists and that's why they procrastinate because they want the best results. But from our vantage point, we often jump to conclusions and we think it's the negative thing and our negative thinking kind of steps in. 
I think it's really important to have empathy, whether as a, as a parent or as a teacher or, or anywhere, really, especially with uh, with uh, children and, and teenagers and adolescents. Yeah, I I use the example in my class all the time that the story we tell ourselves becomes true. <laughs> so just like you said, the procrastinating student is lazy. That's a story I'm telling myself. It may or may not be true, but if I believe it's true, I treat that student differently. If I, if my students, you know, and if you teach, you know, your students, I don't care how good you are. They fall asleep in your class. They will get on their phone during your class. It is what it is. And if I tell myself, well, what a disrespectful jerk, what a terrible student, then that was going to change the way I teach that student. Mm -hmm. Then if I tell myself, that student's probably really tired. That student has, mm -hmm. <laughs> hasn't gotten mm -hmm. a lot of sleep. I may, mm -hmm. this may be the third test they've taken this week or whatever it is. Yeah. Having generous assumptions can change the world. It really can. If I give a generous assumption to someone who looks at their phone during class, I will treat that student in a different way that will allow them to learn. Then if I would have taken the negative, I could have shut that learning down because learning is about connection. It is not about, you know, I'm just going to say the words and you're going to get them. Right? <laughs> we, we, I mean, I, I'm so it's so fascinating that you're also into teaching. So we will get back to parenting in a, in a few moments again. But I want to just make one more point, too, that I've seen with with students who are very good at playing computer games and they don't give up these online games that they have and so on. They keep trying. They keep failing, but they want to get past that level. And so I think really to tap into that because they can do it. The assumption yes. is that they're lazy or not motivated. No, they are. Just give them something that they're interested in and they will surprise. And I think once you give them the opportunity and you make them feel like uh, you surprise them with your reactions, like, okay, I know you're procrastinating because of this and this reason, or you might be tired and you have too much uh, on your plate. That alone will make them feel comfortable and they will be able then to be motivated. And if you can throw in a few games here and there that they would enjoy, why not? You know, it helps the overall aim, which is the learning, I think. I agree. I agree. I, I think we, we make, we are being slow in academia to adjust to the world that they live in today. <laughs> Even in our, like the way that we test students, sometimes I, I tell my students, I said, I'm not going to ask you a question that when you leave my class, you're going to Google anyway. <laughs> when you go into the real world, if this came up, you know, what year was this act? You're going to Google that. I don't see the point of testing you and making you memorize it because you are going to forget it. Yeah. What I need to do is learn how to think about the problem and how to solve the problem. Yes. And and how can we apply that to, uh, for, for parents who are not teachers? Uh, how can they use that to to work with their children in terms of also educating them on what's important and uh, uh, what how they should behave and, and so on? So and how can we uh, do that, incorporate that in our parenting? So like we said, parents are guilty of creating that uh, the grade is the most important thing mentality. And as a parent of a child, two children who are now in college, who had to get into college and had to send off their GPAs, I get it. I, I am on both sides. On one side, yes, their grades did matter. <laughs> it mattered whether they got accepted or not. <laughs> so I get it. And at the same time, grades aren't as important as their learning. Um, grades aren't, the struggle is good. 
And we sometimes, um, we do it at an age, I see it all the time with my parents of littles, because we just think, especially when it's your oldest child and you don't have anything to compare it to, everything feels so important. Mm -hmm. The second grade spelling test. I remember having a parent talking about like the second grade spelling test. You know, I've made her stay up late practicing and she still doesn't get it. And I'm like, her sleep is a thousand times more important than the second grade spelling test. Mm -hmm. Lay off the second, they all learn how to spell. And if they don't, they, again, the world is a different world. They don't need to know how to spell. I hate to say it. It drives me crazy, but they really don't need to know how to spell anymore. Every, their spell check on everything they're going to do. And, so, and in many ways, I, I went to high school in Germany and I went on a trip back to my old high school once uh, years ago. And so I heard these high school students talk about the, 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 the German class that they're taking and they're not doing well and they might fail and they were worried about it. But I, I thought like, yeah, I've struggled through those things and I'm fine. And it didn't matter. That grade in grade two did not matter. It's not going to ruin your life. But the way we perceive it as children and also parents, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because we put so much pressure on our children to, to perform well for good reason, right? We want them to yeah. do well. But we have to also keep in mind that... Um, in the end, maybe it doesn't matter. And there's so much focus on intelligence um, uh, as, as parents and on the children. But there are other types of intelligences as well, emotional intelligence and so on. So they might not be good at math, but they are good at all these other subjects. I think we really need to tune into the, our, our children and figure out what are their strengths and try to like foment that and not mm. to kind of have an agenda and say, I want you to do this. It might work out or it might not. And really being in, in touch with the, the personality, the, the unique, the individuality of, uh, of our children. Absolutely. Absolutely. As a parent, I, you know, I, I have a lot of education. I value education. I was a good student. So, of course, my, my first approach when I had kids was like, they're going to do well in school. They're going to, I'm going to really push them to be academics. And my firstborn child, who is very, very bright, it's not a lack of ability, but he very early on was strong-willed enough to show me that that's not him. He was not that kid. Mm -hmm. And the best thing I did with him as a parent, because I obviously, like everyone, I made lots of mistakes with both of my kids, mm -hmm. but the best thing I think I did with him was acknowledging it early on and stop stop trying to make him into something he just wasn't going to be and loving the kid that I had, as opposed to trying to make the kid that I thought he should be, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And for me, it was like classical music. So I'd take him to like concerts and so on, but he just hates it. It's like, I don't like this dad. And it's like, at some point, you know, you have to like give in and say, like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that you, you can't control and they might come back to it, but it's, kind of giving them the freedom and the choices so they can explore also things and not just giving them something that's fixed and determined, but still guide them. Of course, they need our guidance. And uh, I like the title of your website, Guidance for the Future, because we are in a position that, uh, especially with our kids, we are preparing them for the future and we want the best kind of future for them. But we have to keep in mind that things are changing. So uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and so on, what we thought of the future has dramatically shifted and changed just in the past two years uh, has yeah. changed dramatically. So 
be flexible with that. I think that's important to as as advice for for parents to try to be flexible. Yes, absolutely. And don't assume because so many parents of, you know, teenagers, young adults, kids looking to college, we have this idea of there are five professions where you can be successful. Right? Yeah, I remember those. And, yeah, and and that's just not true. In fact, and there's so much pressure, you know, pick a major and pick a major where you can make lots of money and hmm. all. And I, it's so hard for kids to figure out who they are and where we want them to do something that is true to them. Mm -hmm. It really capitalizes on what makes them light up and makes them, you know, shine. Mm -hmm. And it may not, you know, being a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist, you know, may not be the thing. It, and it's okay. Yeah, there are yeah, lots of okay. really successful, happy, and we define success in a lot of ways, but I, I include you know, genuine happiness and joy in your life as part of success. And you, you're not going to get that just picking something based on this is what my mom wanted me to do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's a huge investment of, of time and money because when you're studying, you have all those years of study and then you will practice it probably for the rest of your life. So it better be good. It better be something that you enjoy and not like feel like I dread going to work. I hate this. Then it's not going to help anybody. You might be making a lot of money but who's benefiting from it you're just basically wasting your life and instead of doing something that you would you would enjoy more i think so that is important and not just be guided by by figures and numbers like oh you can earn more if you did this what are you passionate about and i think the the pandemic has shown us that with the the great resignation where people realize yes. like wait a minute i'm not going to continue with this i want to do something i actually like mm-hmm Absolutely. And I think it's been a wake up call for organizations uh, that the old, you know, hierarchies and mm -hmm, I'm the big boss so I can treat you the way I want to. That just doesn't work. That's not how I don't think that's how we're designed to be in relationship with each other anyway. It doesn't. I think at the end of the day, mean people, mean bosses weren't happy either. <laughs> Exactly. That's you true. know, there's yeah. there's unhappiness on both sides. So they both we've got to renegotiate all of it. Yeah, and and so just our, our views also of motivation and productivity and leadership, especially what you're saying, leadership has has changed uh, thanks to this this uh, this pandemic again, uh, because we're reconsidering, reevaluating it, and uh, like you're saying, uh, it's not helping the old fashion of like you know I'm the general and I tell you I command you to do so. And the workers are just not satisfied with it. They say, you know what? No, you keep your, your own place and I'm, I'm out of here. So um, it's really like also it helps and benefit to be, to be working as a team. Mm -hmm. And would you think that um, that could work in the family structure as well in the family unit to a certain extent, of course, not. Uh, uh, I, 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 we apply that to our family. I say, okay, it's not a democracy necessarily, but... <laughs> It's working together. And would that uh, work? Because we also have the perception or had the perception of parents being the bosses and they command you to do so instead of uh, kind of approaching it like at work. Let's work together as a team as much as possible and feasible. 
Oh, absolutely. And it's not just, um, it's people sometimes mistake when you start talking about things like that. That's like, oh, you're permissive parenting and oh, you're, you're, it's all nice and sweet all the time, which it's not. <laughs> and it's not at work either. What it is, is uh, in, in some ways it's harder than just if I, all I do is say, this is the rule and you follow it. And, and if not, I'm, you know, you're punished for a week. That's super easy because you That's don't have to think. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but what you're, the benefit you're going to get of doing it the way you're describing, where it's, it's not, you know, a free for all, but it's also not just my way or the highway <laughs> is your children are learning skills that they need in life. They're learning decision-making. They're learning problem-solving. It's not just everybody else is telling them what to do and they follow. They have to figure things out. They come up, they learn how to present their views. Yes. Super important. They and learn how to valid. sell. It's so yeah. valid and helpful because I think like the old structure with the boss tells, I know everything and you follow because you don't know you're an empty vessel. But I think even with children, there's so much like when, when we talk about things, some criticism turns out to be true. And I say, you Absolutely. know what? It's okay. I accept it. You're right about that. What I did was wrong. And be, to have the strength of accepting that, the humility of saying, even as a parent or as a teacher or as a boss, I make mistakes and there are ways of improving and not seeing it as an insult or an attack on my uh, credibility and so on. So I think that's really important. A mindset, again, a mindset shift of, of accepting that. And I know from my students, when, when I would say, oh, I don't know the answers to something, and I, I have mostly Asian students, so they would see it as like, how how is it possible you don't know? And you're like, you know, you just lose the standing in their eyes. But it's like, no, that's not it. You know, we learn from each other, whether it's a parent-child or again, teacher and student interaction or boss and, and employee interaction. Yeah. And so what you just did in that moment with your students or your kids is you normalized, you know, not knowing the answer and you've normalized when we go back to our kids, this is super important to go back, especially like we're going back to this parenting anxious kids. And one of the things that happens and happens to me all the time still, and I'm supposedly an expert in this, but your child is melting down and reacting in ways because their anxiety and you don't always realize it's anxiety. You just feel like they're having a tantrum or they're freaking out, which makes you freak out. And maybe you react, maybe you yell at them because they're melting down, whatever. And then in that moment of calm, when you're like feeling terrible about the way that you reacted, which happens to me all the time, and you go back to your child and say, hey, I didn't handle that very well. I felt anxious. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. You are showing your kid that one, it's normal. Even my mom who has way more resources and experience and age, even it, it happens to her. So if it happens to me, it's not that bad because obviously it happens to her too. And here's what you're supposed to do. Because when we don't do that, we're not teaching them. What do you do when you mess up? We got to teach them it's okay to mess up. And here's what you do when you mess up. When you go and you say, I'm sorry, you admit you own that mistake. Um, you admit you don't know everything. 
And then they're more likely to admit they don't know anything and not cover up and not try and bluster and get themselves into way worse situations because of it. Yeah, and there's this drive for perfectionism that is very harmful, I, I think, in our relationships and even for ourselves. And uh, I, I think perfectionism is actually quite bland and boring. I mean, if, if I am the perfect father or perfect teacher, it's like, then I can't improve anymore. I'm stuck. Right. So I, I think I, I prefer not to be so, so that there's room for improvement and for interaction with others. And we have to get rid of that idea. And you say, OK, I'm trying to be perfect. And that's like a continuous struggle until once we die, then that's that's over. We can't do anything. But up to that point, we keep trying. And I think that's really important, especially as a parent of saying, you know what, you're not a perfect parent. And that's OK. You don't want to be. You just want to dive into it and experience it and learn from it. That's the, the journey is really the, the, the goal here. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it, it does. We have to take the pressure off our kids to be perfect. And one of the best ways to do it is to model what it looks like not to be perfect, to own it, to acknowledge it, to apologize. All of, It's super important. Yeah. Anxious kids are especially that whole freaking out and maybe yelling at a friend because they're anxious or maybe they having us model yeah that happens and here's what you do is super important mm -hmm. and what what has helped to uh, for me as uh, as a parent too is to to kind of pause too and not to to immediately react and say okay there's this meltdown i gotta take a moment take a breath not take it personally kind of kind of strategize what's the best thing to do right in this moment and then uh, fall and just that that moment of reflection I found has has really helped to to calm myself down as a parent and then that in turn will calm the child down so I think that's something important would you agree with that? I would agree and I would say what I actually teach my clients to do is to be um, overt about that pause to say it out loud, because again, when you do that, you're modeling, you are saying out loud, I'm feeling overwhelmed in this moment that I'm, and you don't blame your child. You don't put things on them. You're doing this and making me, you just say, I'm feeling really anxious. I'm feeling kind of stressed out. I'm feeling a little freaked out. I need a moment. I'm going to, and then overtly talk through, I'm going to take some deep breaths and do it in front of them and then they because when we tell our kids what to do they don't listen oh, no. <laughs> i don't think anybody does actually no, exactly <laughs> yeah. but we and we make it about them it's personal yeah. they yeah. get defensive but if i say this is what i'm going to do in their little brains it starts connecting oh when i feel this way this is what a, you're supposed to do this is how you can handle it this will make it better and they they kind of absorb it like a sponge as opposed to it trying, we force it on them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the more we can do it and do it out loud in front of our kids, the more they're getting the skills to do it for themselves without feeling defensive and angry and blamed. And like, we're saying something's wrong with them because mm -hmm. that's what they hear when we say, you need to do this. You're anxious. You're freaking out. Do this. Oh, I'm, there's something wrong with me. She thinks I'm not that good, you know? 
But it's it's I mean also like we we say to to our friends too and to other adults when they're stressed we say relax. But it's like it's really easy to say that, and I think rarely has it happened. It's like oh okay now I'm relaxing right. So <laughs> it's there's there's something else at play. So it's it's really that kind of opening up emotionally and saying oh I can see that you're feeling stressed and uh, let's talk about kind of give them the the space and not just order them to to be calm you know and i think that's 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 a good lesson for like any parts of our lives too yeah that's a that's a joke in my house that i say to my husband never in the history of calming down has someone calmed down because you told them to calm down exactly <laughs> it just does not work <laughs> yeah and and i think that again that that empathy of like understanding where the other person is coming from and why they're reacting this way and try to understand why we react as well i think those insights can can help us and clarify the the whole situation so we don't jump to conclusions or we don't have uh we don't see it as like uh certain prejudices that we have about that person or again that group of people and so on i think that's that's hugely important too yeah but the the thing i'd love for anyone that's listening to this and hearing us talk i want you to understand and i'm guessing i don't know this about you but i am guessing that you have some practices that you have used to kind of build those muscles mm -hmm. Um, and I have been practicing building that muscle as well. And even with years of practice under my belt of learning how to pause, that's all the, I'm trying to do. I still don't do it all the time. I probably never will be perfect at it. I still react in the moment. I've gotten better. But if you're listening and thinking, how do you just pause when your child is having a meltdown and a temper tantrum in front of you? How do you not react? It's a muscle. It's not something that comes naturally. You have to build that muscle over time. Mm -hmm. And what, when you do, little by little, you'll have these moments where you're like, oh my gosh, I just I just paused long enough. My child was, this happened not long ago where like there was a huge, and so when I say tantrum, tantrums are not two-year-olds, people. <laughs> tantrums are 18-year-olds. Tantrums, they don't stop. And there was a big, tantrum about the type of snacks we had <laughs> that I did not have good snacks and what I would have done you know five years ago before I had started building the muscle would have been to you know go off on you didn't ask for the snacks and this is you know you're acting inappropriately you should if you want snacks you need to do and just joined right in into the fray which is never the right answer, just, <laughs> yeah. but it is the right, it's the reaction. It's a normal human reaction. So if you have a normal human reaction, don't feel bad about yourself. Mm -hmm. But I built a muscle enough to pause and say, this is an, this is an anxious child. I see in front of me the, this has nothing to do with snacks. Something else is happening. I don't know what something happened at school there's a lot of anxiety and this is where the anxiety is coming out about we don't have any good snacks we never have good snacks you're terrible i hate everyone kind of kind of a tantrum um and so i could pause and and know and react in the right way but that took me years of working that muscle to be able to do it 
Yeah, and it's again going back to that theory. I mean, a lot of people think, okay, I've read the book now, the self help books, and now I got it. No, now is the tough part. Now you actually have to put it into practice. And it's that assumption, the quick results too, that people want. It's like, okay, you give me advice, I'm gonna follow it, and it's gonna be fixed. No, it again takes effort. The same, we're okay physically though. We see that when you work out, we know that we're not gonna get muscles. Like you mentioned, muscle. We're not going to get it overnight. It takes effort, constant practice of, of making mistakes, of fixing those mistakes. And I think we have to be aware of that too. There are no quick results. There's not a quick remedy. It's a constant process, but we keep betting, getting better at it and we keep like growing from it. So I think that's again, noticing that and not having regrets about things that we've done wrong in the past. It's still looming there, but it's like, okay, that was me in the past. Now I've learned a new strategy. And going back to the idea of worrying, it's, um, I understand the sentiment and I myself worry a lot too, but it's it's not useful at all. It's actually quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's it a lot doesn't of waste bring, of energy. Exactly, a complete waste of energy because you're worried about something that might or might not happen. And um, if it does, it will happen. If it doesn't, it won't happen. But either way, you've just wasted your your energy instead of focusing on what can I do in this moment to, again, whatever it is you want to fill in for for that part. Yeah. Yeah. I actually read a statistic that um, said uh, any kind of lasting change, 20% is the insight piece that leads to act, you know, and making a change. 80% is the practice. It's the doing it's the, it's whatever um, you figure out to build your muscles, to Mm -hmm. calm yourself down, to stay in the present moment. And yeah, we have, I think that's what the pandemic that to me, the, the gift of the pandemic or the message of the pandemic was you're not in control. (laughs) control is just a huge illusion anyway we were we were kidding ourselves up until that point and we all needed a wake-up call to say we can't control what's going to happen tomorrow so focus on this moment focus on where you are right now because we don't know what could happen tomorrow and i love that and i I think that those who have suffered more under the pandemic are the ones who like to be in control because they suddenly for them it's much harder to accept that and which is fine that's a lesson of life it's like you know what what you thought was happening is not reality it's a wake-up call as you're saying was i think others like myself uh, this struggle my wife is more controlling than i am so uh in my case i was like okay I accept it. I'll do this. I have to do this now. Okay. I'm okay with it. And just go with the flow. And I I think uh, she's coming to my direction a bit more, which is again, a great lesson of life. And that's the, the, we have a lot of control, but there are a lot of things that is outside of it. I love the serenity prayer of like knowing that difference. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. And that's what, I mean, I write this in my teenager book, Mm -hmm. the, the journey of parenting is just the journey of relinquishing control little by little and (laughs) almost always we're still trying to control more than we should (laughs) because it's so hard to let go Uh, whatever you're controlling with your child you should always look at it and say i'm probably controlling more than i should Uh, in fact i read another study that said um, benign neglect so not 
terrible neglect where you just don't feed your children, but a level of benign neglect is one of the healthiest parenting strategies out there. <laughs> <a good> point. <laughs> it's not harmful, but there's a level of just like, I'm going to let them figure out how to get their breakfast, or I'm going to let them figure out how to make a doctor's appointment. And those kinds of things that we want to control. I still want to control my child's about my oldest is about to be 20 and I'd love to control that stuff. <laughs> I said, he, again, he's, he was really good about establishing boundaries with me that helped me grow as a person. <laughs> exactly. But to, to also say, I'm here for you, the emotional yeah. support, the, the backup is like, if it doesn't work out, you don't know how to do it. I'm here, but give it a shot to give it a try. And that's something I firmly believe in as well. I think it's hugely important. Yeah. Let them make some mistakes. They yeah. have to. And that's the one that's so hard for us to sit yeah. back and let them, you know, you know that this is a bad job to take, or you know that this is not what they're going to be happy. You know, it's a bad boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. And you still kind of have to sit back and bite your tongue and let them go down that road a little bit. Yeah. But but the worst thing is when it does happen to say, I told you so. I, I That's one thing yeah. I resent when people do that to me. I was like, okay, yes. But <laughs> let's like, forget about that. Let's not like gloat and glee and stuff. Okay. What can we do now? And really like be focused on the, on the present situation yeah, and not carry that learn? from the past. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What'd you learn about yourself? What'd you learn about, you know, how would you do it differently now? That's the mm -hmm. questions to ask. Never to say, I told you so. Because, um, yeah, then they'll never tell you again. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hugely important. Thank you so much for this awesome conversation. So the book is uh, Stop Worrying About Your Anxious Child. And uh, you also have a Stop Worrying About Your Teenage child yeah, well. stop okay. worrying about your anxious teenager teenager there we go yes your yeah. anxious teenager and um anxiety is part of life worrying is part of life we want to deal with it we want to worry less and in most cases almost all cases when we worry it actually turns out to be fine and sometimes even better as we've uh, experienced with the pandemic so it's it's really important to enjoy the ride would you say that's Absolutely. a good way? <laughs> yeah, and look for the look for the good things even in the bad situations. Like yeah. I said, there's so many examples. Taking my daughter to college, the, my last little anecdote. Last week, her car was broken, and so we had to put it in the shop, and it wouldn't be ready in time for her to go to college. And that it was like, oh, this is terrible. This is such a bad thing. I'm gonna have to make a second trip to bring her car to her, or. I get to have her in my car to go to college. She would have been in her own car. Win-win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now I get to have a second reason to go see her. Yeah. So it's like we could focus on this is terrible, it's bad, or we could look and say, what's yeah. good about this? Yeah, There's yeah don't block yourself with that negative thinking and just say, okay, open up and there's there's again the answer might be even better than the initial plan uh yeah. just love that yeah and uh so your website is guidance for the future that's how people can know more about you it can contact you thank you so much tanya for being on a rash's world it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you i loved it okay